Hey everyone, welcome back. Last season was all about politics, and I couldn't help but notice one particular theme kept coming up in every episode with every guest. Learning. So I thought, why not make season two all about, you guessed it, education. For our very first episode of season two, I got to sit down with Mr. Ernest Krim III. I'm Joy Dertinger, and this is 99 Lead Balloons. Season two, episode one. Your Favorite Black History Teacher, Part 1. Ernest, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm really excited to to talk with you and get to know you and hear your perspective about about education. So, uh, first of all... um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about you, hear, hear you share a little bit about who you are and your story, if that's okay. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me, Joy. It's always a pleasure to be able to have a conversation like this and be able to share my story as a part of being a solution to the problems we face right now. Uh, to the listeners out there, my name is Ernest Krim III. My, my tagline is, I'm your favorite black history teacher. But what that really means is, I'm, I'm, really, I'm, a, I'm a black history advocate and At its core, what I really do with my work is I advocate for those who are disenfranchised. And I think the best way to kind of explain who I am to the listeners is, and I always try to look at things in terms of um, if we remove all these different variables at its essence, what is it that I truly do? And what I do is I stand up for people. Um, I, I just recall as a child being the person at my school who never liked to see people get bullied. And I was never that type of person in school that was bullied, but I never took advantage of people. And I was the one where people who were bullied actually went to and confided in. Sometimes I didn't really want to be that person, but I but I realized over time that that was something that I was pro- possibly gifted with. And then I began to just walk into my purpose and um, when I began to come across different issues of racism. And that's when I began to ask different questions throughout my life. And that led me to where I am now as a person who's an author of Black History Saved My Life, which is my journey um, to find out the impact that Black history had leading up to this hate crime that I experienced that was you know, broadcasted across the world online. Mm-hmm. So besides that, I'm an educator. So I teach uh, U.S. history, African-American and Latin history to high school uh, juniors and seniors. Um, I'm a, a public speaker consultant, but everything I do revolves around uh, providing equity and balance to this world. And I think that we need that more than than ever right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that. I, like, I, I'm really excited to, to talk with you. I knew that you were an educator. I knew that you um, taught history specifically, um, which I think is, is going to be crucial to really every episode that I record this season because we can't talk about education if we can't talk about our history, particularly our, our national history um, exactly. and the gaps that exist in our you know current history curricula. Um, so I knew you were an educator. I knew you were an author. Um, what I didn't know, however, was that you were, cons- were a consultant with various um, schools and education systems. Um, so that is very uh, exciting and really cool to learn because um, I mean... When I think about doing, uh, recommending a consultant to like, for example, you know, my school district where my kids go to school, um, a lot of times I'm hard pressed to find someone local, you know, who is going Mm -hmm. to move into something like that. 
mm-hmm. and actually be able to speak um, from experience and to have the background that's necessary to speak on that basis. And so um, it uh, usually ends up being a lot of internet scouring, a lot of like, who, you know, who can I find? Who do I talk to? And how do I make sure that I'm approaching this in the best way possible? So for me, that's really exciting because I know that in our district, uh, that's something that's, that's deeply needed. Um, I would guess in just about every district in America right now in the United States, but in ours, yeah. it's, it's definitely something that, um, seems glaringly obvious. So, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. I, I think as educators, one thing we don't realize is that, uh, it's called commencement for a reason. So after you graduate, you're the expert up until that point. So mm-hmm. if you graduated college in the year 1990, you were the expert up until that point. If you have not received any education since then, then you are stuck in the 90s. And that's a place, we don't want to be stuck in any era before this, honestly. I know we're dealing yeah. with something traumatic right now, but we're, we're getting better. So mm-hmm. um, I say that speaking from my own experience too, I'm constantly educating myself as well on different things that are coming up in, in, our, in our life. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, well, I'd love to hear a little bit about... Um, you know, you shared about what you do for a living, about um, what you believe and what's important to you, especially from a, ra- a morality standpoint. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit, and if you can share with our listeners as well, a little bit about identities that you hold and ways that that um, the education has affected your community or ways that your identity has affected your your education. Maybe that would be a good place to start. The identities that you hold and how that has impacted your education. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, first of all, I will say that from a spiritual perspective, I view myself as a a child of the Creator, a child of the Most High, uh, regardless of how anybody may subscribe to that or call that. Um, you know, I, I just that I, I believe that's what we all are at our truest essence. And beyond that, I describe myself as Black, and uh, that's something I've recently come around because one of the things about being a Black person in this country is your identity is just very. It's, 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 it's fluid because you don't really know where you came from. Like, you know you came from a massive continent, which is often described as a country, mm-hmm. but you don't really know where because, for one, when you were taken away, there, there weren't countries. There were empires, and they weren't separated right. by, by walls and these different artificial lines that we create as human beings. Um, so you start off there, and then you become, you know, you're, you're Negro, you're the N-word, you're African-American, but then again, going back to that, well, are you West African, East African, Southern African, Northern African? Right. You know, right. so I've, I've, I've recently adapted this identity of, of saying black because we've had to create such a unique culture here for survival, um, in some cases for thriving as well. But I also look at it in terms of my spirituality. Black is what everything comes from. You, you cannot have the universe without blackness. You you know, the, the the star is black. The, the lights come from that. The black hole, I mean, just anything. So to me, it's, it's a deeply spiritual thing. And besides that, um, of course, I would also be, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a, a, a father, um, a student of life. I, I'm hesitant to always say teacher. That's an occupation, but I'm learning every day. I think a wise person realizes that they don't really know anything. I don't know anything. I'm learning constantly every day. Mm-hmm. I'm a parent, you know, for the, for yeah. the I have three kids, but if, if any, anybody out there that's a parent knows, you don't really know what you're doing. No. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> like, 
you know what you don't know. I mean, it's like yeah. I'm, I'm hoping this pays off. Like, yep. is it too much screen time? Am I being too hard on them? <laughs> you know, am I yeah. am, am I lecturing too much? Am I being too hard with those vegetables? So mm-hmm. we're all on this journey together. Yeah. And I, I think in terms of how I've been raised, um, I hold I hold those identities sacred and, and true to me. But in terms, it's more in terms of inclusivity because I'm not who I am because I'm separate. I'm who I am because of everybody else. There's an African concept of, of Ubuntu, which means like, you know, I am because you are. So regardless of how we describe ourselves, African, European, Asian, indigenous, or whatever we, we subscribe to, we cannot exist without us all being together as one. So that's just that that's my identity. Um yeah. I'm I just feel as though everybody has their role. When I speak to kids, sometimes I'll kind of describe our situation as like, you know, we're 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 looking at a a, a pix like a picture. And you if you zoom in, you'll see the pixels. Mm-hmm. But if few a few of those pixels aren't on, or if you're looking at like a a, a billboard and you see some of those tiny light bulbs are off, yeah. then the picture doesn't look right, you right. know. So we, we all have a role. Some of us in a, in a picture of a face would probably, maybe we're at the eyes, maybe we're at the lips, somebody might be at the shoulder, mm-hmm. but everybody plays a role in this and, and, and nobody's more important than the other. And if we can't figure this out and coexist together, uh, my, my identity, my belief says, and we're all destined to, to tremble and fall together. So yeah, yeah. how do we stand, divided, we fall, right? Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really um, incredible to hear, like really all of it. And um I, I will say, like, for me, obviously, the thing that I relate to the most is being a parent um, and mm-hmm. kind of really trying to muddle your way through everything that you're doing. Because, yeah, you can go through um, as many books and as, as much, you know, training, so to speak, as you want. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, uh, being a parent changes you in ways that um, I, don't, I don't think anything else can. And it makes you know what you shared about because of you I am that concept um makes me think about parenthood and we talk about things like it takes a it takes a village and things like that and um and I think that one of the most crucial things that I learned um really after my kids became school age was I'm not gonna meet all of their needs I'm not gonna be the one to do I want to be the one to do it and I want to be the one to fill every gap but honestly, I can't. I don't have what it. I, I don't have what it takes, and so I need the other people in their lives to to fill in those spaces, and um, and knowing that different children are going to have different experiences in education, and um, not just you know elementary school or preschool, but all the way up through college and universities. Every person who is is learning is going to have a different experience and is going to come with different challenges and different perspectives. Um, and it's obvious that those things are, are very important to you. As you said, all of those identities are sacred to you and, and they hold a very special and important place in your life. Um, and I wonder how that impacts you, not just as an educator, but um, as a person who grew up, obviously, in education who that was something that must have stuck out to you for you to choose this as you know a a career to move in this direction for what you wanted to study and things like that yeah yeah that's that's a great question and um the first thing that pops up in my mind i'm not sure if you've ever heard of neil degrasse tyson Mm -hmm. Uh, he's an astrophysicist and he had this well 
Carl Sagan originally had this segment, but I think it was called the Cosmos. And I don't understand my, I, I love history, but then I love physics too. Yeah. Never studied it in school, but maybe it's the historical component of like the explanation of laws and just mm. where we come from and everything. Sure. So he is, when he shows the cosmic calendar, um, it's just the most amazing thing to me to think of this thing from, you know, we say maybe from 14 or 15 billion years ago. You can't even quantify that up until this point. So the way I look at education is when I was born in the 80s, um, I'm only going to be here for a blimp. Like, yeah. I, you know, Lord willing, I always say I want at least 100 years would be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like 100 years, 100 years and, and being well at 102 yeah. would be great. Yeah. But even then, 100 out of billions, you know, like I don't know anything. And there's a quote I came across uh, from Cicero and it says to to not know about anything. It's something like this. To not know what happened in the past is to forever remain a child. So when I, when I came here, my parents gave birth to me. Like I always had this curiosity. And luckily I was born in a household where my parents fed that. My mother was an educator for like 35 years, educator oh, wow. in principal. She's a pastor now. So like she is on that pursuit still. She's kind of, I'm teaching my mom certain things now that I've learned because we have more access, you know, right. same thing with my father. So when I would ask questions, they answered them or they would send me downstairs. We have these encyclopedias, the world books, which in the 90s, these books were still, oh, they were like from the 60s, but yet and still, <laughs> I used on every research. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if any teacher is watching this, I lied about some of the dates because I didn't want y'all to think that I was looking at research from the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all we had. We didn't yeah. have Google. Right. And when I when we, got, we got the internet, it took like 30 minutes to log in. Right. So <laughs> I think um, a couple things personify my pursuit in education. For one, my mom was never just a teacher. When you talk about the village, my mom was the village to her kids. She taught math, but I promise you, my mom was not a math teacher at home. She wasn't this person that was like, if you took this and this and you did this, well, you know, what was the form? Like, I, I could tell she got into education because she loved the kids in our community. Mm -hmm. She would take them to church with us. Um, one year, she raised money to take them to D.C., Mm -hmm. kids had never been out of town. They didn't have money yeah. for a trip. These kids from the south side of Chicago took them out of town. Um, several of her former students have become co-workers who worked with her, whose That's parents awesome. weren't in their lives. So, And she always tells me, too, when she was pregnant with me, um, Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, she was campaigning for him. So, wow. like, you know, if you believe in, you know, uh, we, we inherit what our ancestors did, we attract that energy then I feel like I was born to pursue this uh, life of equity. So after that, when I'm in, I'm living on the south side of Chicago, all black neighborhood, eventually I go to a mostly white school okay. called Mount Greenwood. And mm -hmm. it's a culture shock. But when you're six, you don't think it's a culture shock. You're just like, well, these are people who look different. And it just is what it is. Yeah. When you start to get a little older, you're like, okay, well, why is it that all me and my black friends, we get on this bus and then we leave. And they and all my white friends walk home. It's like something. Mm. And then my white friends, some of the things they talked about, we didn't have access to the the, the neighborhood football teams. Mm -hmm. Like me and my friends, we want to play football. We're just in the front yard playing football. Like there was no organized team, right. organized basketball. No, even not even having a local park because I was so far south. We didn't have any in that area. Mm. So one day I remember just I'm nine years old. I come home. And I asked my mom because my mom was, again, a person, even even today, I bounce ideas off of, I talk to her. I go downstairs, um, she's typing on her typewriter, and she's working on something I could tell. I just straight out blurted, your mom, why is it that we've never had a black president before? 
And the reason why I asked it was because we have been looking at presidents in school, and I just began to notice that every time we looked at somebody, nobody ever looked like me. Yeah. But then when I went home, everybody in the house, not just talking about my parents and my sister, but the posters, the books, they all look like me. So mm. I'm thinking it's a disconnect. Like, why is it that we have this black museum here, but at school it's, the, <laughs> it's like the complete antithesis. Right. And then my mom like, well, that's because they're waiting on you to grow up. And, mm. and, and that was a spark right there that, that kind of, I always tell people that determined the trajectory of my life, not because... You know, when you tell you tell a kid at six, seven, you know, you're going to be this, you're going to be that, their life's going to change. They have no idea. Mm -hmm. But at its core, just having a kid believe that they can do that is the seed you want to plant. Yeah. Like when my when my first daughter graduated from, um, and I say graduated loosely, but <laughs> graduated from kindergarten. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you didn't have to do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just say your name. You can get it. You go to first grade. But... <laughs> They were on the stage back when people could learn in person yeah. and they had to say, uh, what what do you want to be when you grow up? And like mm -hmm. 10 kids are like, I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a veterinarian. But like this, for one, it's powerful that they can even pronounce that word at five. Yeah. But also two, just the idea, like I can be that. I can mm -hmm. do that. So my mom told me that. And it wasn't just that. It was like everybody in my family heard that story. She must have told them mm -hmm. because when I would go, to talk to people when I would go to, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, my family members would be saying that. And mm. then I have I have an uncle, a great uncle on my grandma's side. He's a congressman. So it was kind of like, you're going to do this. You're going to like this, mm. this is you, Mr. President, Mr. President. So that then so having that uh, gifted in me and that seed planted coupled with my curiosity led me to say, well, if I'm going to be that and it's not in this, it's not this now, I need to figure out why it's not then. Hmm. So I began to fill in the middle. Yeah. Start to ask questions. Then I go to a black high school, um, completely different again, because now I'm used to having a, a not knowingly, unknowingly assimilate for eight years. Now I'm at a black high school, like completely different culturally. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to I didn't go to middle school or elementary with these kids. So I'm meeting everybody from scratch. Yeah. Then it's a completely different experience. Then my, my idea is, well, why is it that when I'm in the so-called regular courses, many of my friends are smart, but they don't want to show that they're smart. Mm. <laughs> you know, this, per, mm -hmm. this perception of acting white. And then when I go to the, you know, so-called honors level courses, the culture is completely different. So mm -hmm. I began to think about that deeply, like why, if I'm if I'm smart and I strive to get a 4.0, because that's what my family's telling me I should go for. My dad would pick me up, and every time he picked me up, what you get on your test? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, dude, you know I had a test, man. <laughs> like, I mean, if you didn't get an A or B, it wasn't something to brag about. So right. I was like, well, I got a 70. Like, why, why'd you get a, you know, he's, a, he's interrogating me in, in the calmest way possible, because to me, it was like he knew I could do better. Yeah. But I also understood that some of the friends I had at school, they may not have had that same encouragement. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're talking about education. Historical trauma would, would say that in, in black culture that you weren't supposed to act like you were smart because that might be proof that somebody taught you how to read. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and if somebody taught you how to read, not only are you guilty as a black person, but if a white person taught you, they're guilty too. Right. You might get sold. Right. Um, you might you might you might leave your friends and, and be so-called promoted to the big house working as a house slave. So mm -hmm. there's a lot that we don't know that we carry. So when I going back right. to your original question, to me, it's like, if I just started in the 80s, I'm ignorant because I'm born in the 80s in the middle of Ronald Reagan 
introducing cocaine and crack mm-hmm. to our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And if I just if I'm just dropped here in this existence at this point in history, and I think that's black culture, right. then I'm doomed. Right. I'm doomed. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't start to ask those questions, you're yeah. going to believe what they show you, what they tell you. So, um, yeah, that that led me to high school. And then to wrap it up, when I went to college, thinking I was super smart, my first semester, I almost uh, flunked out because I was in psychology, which I thought was my thing at that time. But I didn't really I tried to do high school things in college. So I, I oh, wouldn't really yeah. study but like, you know, OK, I got a test tomorrow. You know, let me just look at my notebook. Okay, mm. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't work. And then at the end of that first semester, I had a 1.4 mm. reality check. But here's the thing. Again, you talk about education. My mom told me, you know, I could do anything I put my mind to it. I could be the first black president. My dad picked me up when he picked me up after they divorced every week. It's what you get on your test. Mm. Um, you know, why, why, did, why did you get a C? When I go to my grandma's house on my mom's side, she only had five channels. So, Whenever we got there, if, even wanted, if we wanted to watch those five channels, first we had to read a magazine. And she won't let us watch unless we read the magazine. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm seeing myself, I'm smart. 1.42, that's not me. Mm-hmm. So I dropped that uh, course. I'm sorry, I dropped that major. Then I began to take black history out of curiosity. And the curiosity mm-hmm. was, well, my parents answered as many of these questions as they could. Now I'm on my own. Now it's time for me to pursue this independent of them. Right. And I'm also going to take it because I'm competitive. And I had a friend tell me that this course was hard. And in my <laughs> mind, how could a history course be hard, especially mm. if it's about me? Yeah. You read, you answer questions, right? <laughs> so I took it <laughs> and I took it out of curiosity. Long story short, I said, this is what I have to do with my life. If mm. I was able to teach dudes from my block, my neighborhood, people who look like me or people who had gone through adversity, if I was able to teach them this information, they wouldn't be doing it because they wouldn't they would know that they didn't just start this life in the 80s or the 90s or whatever, that there's a whole bunch to unpack before then. Right. And even before then, you know, yeah. so going back as far. As go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So that is that's amazing. Um, so I have to share, um, I guess, in response, I feel the need to let you know, I um, I was actually uh, homeschooled. And Mm. so even, even school in general as a, as a concept. Um, so my kids are, are in public elementary school right now. My daughter is in, um, intermediate school. And that's like, this is my first sort of foray other than college. I went to college, um, which was like a slap in the face because that was completely different from anything I had ever experienced. Uh, but also like, this is my first experience with the public, with any public school system. Right. And so what you're sharing about like being in different classes and and peers and all of these things, um, it's, it's foreign to me, I guess. Uh, it's, it's confusing. Um, not in the sense that like I, absolutely can't wrap my mind around it because like I said I did go to college I did have classes with peers and in that regard but it was different right um and so now as my kids are going to school and you're talking about black history specifically um yes history in general but black history especially um is something that's left out is something that you know my kids yes they're young yes they're in elementary school um, an intermediate school, but they come home, um, or, you know, we celebrate a holiday and it's a very like, 
it, it's seen through only one lens and it's taught through only one lens. And so that idea, like what you're mentioning and talking about as far as you can't just live in this moment that you've been dropped in and think that that's the whole story. There's so much more beyond that in our past that we have to learn about and understand in order to come to grips with where we are right now so we can move through life. Um, I mean, as a parent, I'm seeing that and I'm like, wait a minute. I knew that I, I, I knew that there were parts of my education that had gaps in them. Um, and I'm working through relearning history um, now as an adult. And then when I, when I learn something in history, there are days when I'll go to my kids and I'm like, did you know that this happened? And sometimes they're like, yeah, d you didn't know that. <laughs> And, you know, I've got a kid in third grade who's like, yes, mom. Um, right. <laughs> but at the same time, sometimes I'm like, I just learned this thing. Hey, kid, did you know that this happened? I'll ask my, my daughter or my son. And they're like, what? No, we never, we never learned about that. Um, and so it's like this big influx of information that um, I wonder sometimes, why don't, uh, why, why don't we am I the only one who's just now learning about this, I guess? And yeah. I think for some, that that's probably the answer is no, that a lot of other people are just now learning this for the first time too. Um, but then going back and unpacking, unpacking, why is that? Why is this the first time that I'm learning about this? Why is it that, um, you know, as a 32-year-old person with kids, why is this the first time? that I'm learning about yeah. massive chunks of history. Yeah. Um, and knowing that that's true for so many people and knowing that my kids are having a similar historical experience. Um, yeah. And that that means lots of other kids are too. And that, you yeah. know, the history that you learned in high school, you, you said you took, you went into black history because you were mm. curious <clears throat> and they said it was, you know, you had friends who said it was a tough class um, and a, a tough field and you expected it to be easy. Tell me about like what, what made it difficult, you know, what made it so tough and then um, what, what that looks like uh, kind of moving forward, I guess, how, how that impacted you once you were in it. Yeah, yeah, great question. And I, I think, too, in terms of um, education and, and what you bring up about us not learning the truth and learning different perspectives, I think we also have to understand um, unpacking what the purpose of education or schooling has been in this country. Hmm. And, of course, I'm, I'm pulling together different facts, so it's my unique theory. But when my ancestors were, were, were forcibly taken here, the purpose was never to educate us in ways that will make us successful independently. Right. It was to make uh, the plantation owners successful. Mm -hmm. So our education, of course, was to picking the cotton and to be subservient. Sure. Um, and then at that same time, uh, indentured service some poor whites who are coming. Again, it's not the purpose to educate you. The first people that could vote, wealthy white men, you know, mm -hmm. for a long time. I don't think we ever talk about that in terms of diversity with our um, federal elections. Yep. For the most part, most of our presidents have been chosen by wealthy white folks, especially wealthy white men. Yeah. So education um, doesn't even become a, a, a thing publicly until I think around the 1850s with Horace Mann. Mm -hmm. And that's in Massachusetts. So that's a northern state. Um, I, and I'm a history teacher, so I should know this off the top, but I believe it was uh, either the first or one of the first states to abolish slavery. Mm 
So, and Horace Mann's thing was we need some uniformity education, uniformity, because yeah. there's too much, there's too much variance across the country, too much going on. This person knows this, this person doesn't know anything. Because what you said with homeschooling, that was the first thing you get, you got educated at home. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we've lost a lot by depending on our, uh, our school system. Mm -hmm. But then it becomes, we have so-called abolished slavery. And I want you to think about this and all the listeners as well. When we begin to transition from slavery to sharecropping or the industrial age and all of that, we never looked at our school system and said, well, we need to change that too. Right. It was just drag it along. Like our school system prior to this year, it looked like the same industrial model, kids in a row, uniformity, mm -hmm. you know, kids stand up every day, say the pledge, uniformity, mm -hmm. uh, kids, you know, answer this question, uh, but don't talk back uniformity, like, or don't even question why you have to do certain things. And if you, and if you speak out, if you talk too much without raising your hand, you, you get reprimanded in a way that makes it makes you feel as though that curiosity is bad. You know, mm. that's bad. If you don't yeah. follow this, that that's bad. And then what's U.S. history? What what I what I learned in U.S. history growing up was answer questions. That was it. Like and I mean, get to the end of the chapter and find the answer. Answer the questions. Mm -hmm. I don't remember too much. I remember yeah. Dr. King Day, Black History Month. I remember, you know, George Washington uh, with the wooden teeth, which I found out later, right? Yeah. Just like you, <laughs> later that those teeth were actually taken from his enslaved black folks. Yeah. Um, you know, couldn't tell a lie. Abraham Lincoln, all these, these different myths. So now going yeah. back to myself in college, it was, I didn't know that the college I was at was still a part of that same schooling process. So for one, I believe people thought this course or these course, courses were difficult because in history, you have to do a lot more writing. There's not that many multiple choice. Like the second history course I took, uh, this I wrote about him in my book. I dedicated a whole chapter to him because he was so influential. Professor mm -hmm. Abdul Al-Kamat. He's the one who really influenced me to go into education. Um, every week we had to write a paper. Wow. No test. Mm -hmm. We wrote a paper. And I think that's probably why people thought it was difficult. It mm -hmm. depends on your personality type. Some people are, like my wife's a math teacher. She hates writing anything mm. <laughs> besides, besides a tweet or a Facebook post. Right. And I, I, I and I love writing and I, I don't really like the math thing. Yeah. So people dislike that. But to me, it allowed me to say, again, going against that uniformity and conformity. Normally, our school teaches it's either A, B, C or D. Yeah. And my mind is, but wait, there's truth in all of them. <laughs> but, that, but that's not acceptable there's right. a reason why i always got an a in history now i understand because when i started writing those papers i was like yo i, I like being able to express myself i actually yeah. like writing mm. this is this makes sense to me mm -hmm. and in my mind i'm writing three to four pages every sunday and they're due by monday morning when i graduated college i'm like then i had my senior thesis that was like 50 pages mm -hmm. my history senior thesis was like 25 mm. I can write a book. All you gotta do is write a few pages a week or or a page a day. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's that, but that thought process. But here's what I want to tell you too about in terms of our education system and why these things aren't as appealing. When I declare my major in history, because I know if I want to teach uh, in, in a school, I have to know all aspects of history, not just my own. Yeah. But the required courses were ones in which I was not represented. So yeah. I had to take uh, the first history course I took to make sure I really wanted to do this was called Western Civilization. Mm -hmm. So, again, I'm from the south side of Chicago. When I was in high school, we took the U.S. history, we took world history, you know, and we took whatever, like the, the government test and all that. Mm -hmm. 
I had never heard of what Western civilization was. I didn't know what that was. Yeah. I do know in, I do know in world history we started with Greece and Rome, which now I'm like that's completely idiotic <laughs> to start a world history. <laughs> we all come from Africa, but we're starting here. That don't even make sense. Mm, yeah. So, <laughs> so in this course, I'm thinking well, Western Hemisphere. I'm thinking in my mind, well, if I look at a map, the Western side is North America, South America. So I, I was excited because I'm like. I never learned about Native Americans besides, mm. you know, Columbus and Blackhawks or mm. the, the the mascots. Mm. I didn't really know too much. So I'm like, oh, I can't wait. My first day in course, this dude was lecturing for an hour on like R- Greece and Rome. And I was mm. like, what what are we doing here? Mm. <laughs> like, what, what you yep. know, in a semester later and in, 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 in many naps in class later, mm. I was like, man, I don't really like this. I want to just take all black courses, but I realized that's what I, I had to do that to get to where I wanted. And, and the point of this is, why would that course be required, mm-hmm. right? What, what's you know, Not to say that history is not important, but why is it more important? They're also requiring that somebody take a Black or Latino history course or gender studies course or Native American history course or Asian history course. Right. So th- this schooling that we go through, and I was reflecting on this yesterday, it's no fault of your own that you didn't learn things or maybe even your kids. It's for one, school is just where we're supposed to be introduced to the most basic history concepts, but also two, our schooling serves a purpose. This is my theory to produce an obedient populace. Honestly, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's, it's a, you know, like it's a, I'm an assembly line uh, worker. That's how I look at it now when I'm in school. Yeah. We stand out in halls and kids come in, they come in, like I, I turn the boat, I pass them off to math. They turn the boat pass them over here to science and they do something else. And we all love our unique courses, but what we're doing is we're saying, okay, now by the time you leave here, you can be, you can work. Mm. Nothing wrong. You should be able to work, but work sometimes is synonymous with, again, obedience and maintaining the status quo. So if we're at a point now where we're saying our country is, whoa, what is going on? Then we can't just be like, well, police, they're bad. We can't just be like, well, you know, the, the, the Congress, they're bad. The president, they're bad. Okay, but where did, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, at the basic level, well, where did they come from? I can't control yeah. the household. Where did they come from? Mm-hmm. Those people you hate, whether they be at your local city level, maybe an officer, uh, you know, maybe some other, like a, a corrupt businessman, they went through schooling. Yeah. <laughs> so how would how yeah. they, they went, they went, <laughs> they went through our industrial model. Right. So what, 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 product that we produce when they left yeah did we did we challenge that you know Kyle Rittenhouse when he was in class mm. did we did we challenge a student who had these radical ideas that were were based on lies or did mm-hmm. we just say well you got an A so that's good enough right right <laughs> so yeah I, I, yeah absolutely I mean and I think that that's something that I, I mean I see it now even with my young kids I, I don't know um how old your your youngest is but my uh youngest in elementary school is in first grade and uh what you're describing about uh this be about education and and the education system in the united states uh being something that it basically churns out cogs in a machine that is about it's about continuing profit profit um and I see it in my first grader, you know, like he he's learning the basic concepts, like you said, of math and reading and writing and all of these things. And that that's great. That's great. But at the same time, he's six. And 
I can't tell you how many times he's been asked what he wants to be when he grows up, what he wants to do. And it's not like what he wants to be in terms of what kind of a person do you want to be? What do you want to, you know, do you want to be inquisitive and be a learner? Do you want to be a helper? Do you want to like nothing about personal characteristics um, or character qualities? It's what job do you want to have? And how are you going to make sure that you do well in your job? Well, the way to make sure that you are doing well in your job and making enough money is to get good grades in school. So you can go to a good college and get good grades in college and then you'll get a good job and you make plenty of money and you can contribute right. to society. And, right. le- and and that's our concept of of mattering, I guess. And, and I mm-hmm. when I see that in my six-year-old, I'm like, oh God, I don't want to... You know, I don't want that for him. Um, and he and and like you, um, we we wonder like, okay, well, how are we how are we teaching them about American history without actually addressing the fullness of American history? Because yeah, they're my kids are they take history courses, they learn history, but they're not mm-hmm. learning the fullness of it. Um, and they, you know, this is this is where we're at. Uh, is is in this very like stunted um, mm-hmm. ver- version of of what we say is is going to be good enough and is going to you know prepare them, but it's it's not. Um, you know, my husband is learning about his culture. He's um, he's white passing, but his family is um, indigenous from Mexico. Uh, mm. That's that's where his heritage is from, and also um, Jewish. But he doesn't know anything about his culture. Mm. He didn't learn any of it in in school. And now he's got a master's and still doesn't know anything about his culture and about his history. And so he's going back through, um, you know, family records and learning about that part of his family and about his history from family members and from, you know, anything he can learn and Mm -hmm. find out on his own. Um, And that informs who he is. And so we should also be allowing that to inform our children in school. And we shouldn't make it something that you have to figure out later on. And you have to right. do, you know, additional um, study. And, and it, personal study is great. Learning on our own is a wonderful thing. Um, being a lifelong learner is awesome. And I hope that my kids are that way. However, um, if we tell them, hey, these are the courses that you need to take. This is, you know, what you need to learn. Um, and then now you're done. And they, they're going to think they have the whole picture. And yeah. they're growing up without it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, this, this very capitalistic, like, you go through the system and then you enter society in order to turn a profit. Mm-hmm. And so that your kids can do the same thing. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Yeah, that that to me is um, <laughs> it's just it's, it's reminiscent of the fact that we are. So my parents, they grew, like my dad worked at Sears for thirty years straight. Mm. My grandfather on my mom's side worked for the post office after he came back from the Korean War. Thirty years straight, retired wow. as soon as he could. Bam, I'm done. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We can only, in a lot of ways, teach our kids, uh, you know, based on our own experience. So one of the quotes 
that I came across recently that I love. I got this from uh, listening to Eric Thomas's podcast, and he w- he was saying how you can, as an educator, people assume that you have to you can only educate somebody if you got from A to Z. That's a misconception, mm-hmm. big misconception. If you made it from A to B, you can educate somebody. You yeah. know, if you got to C or D, whatever. So like a lot of us, if we're being truthful about where we are now, we were taught by parents who have that same mindset. Maybe they got to C and they thought that was, that was what it is to life. Maybe they got to E or F or whatever. We are now with this same model telling our kids that they're going to do the same thing when these jobs aren't even lasting uh, 30 days, let alone 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. even what you say with capitalism, like they're missing out on the self inquiry years. Like mm-hmm. I'm love, I'm loving this time now because I get a chance to be with my kids more. We get to talk more about these concepts, but in, on a typical, you know, school day, if they're going from eight to three and I'm teaching from eight to three and you know, I'm they're in an after school program and I might not get done with everything to like four or five. By the time we get home, and years pass, I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't, I mean, I've, I've, I've talked too much. I don't want to hear anything else. Yeah. They might, you know, we, we, we talk a little bit, but, we, but the, for the most part, we're getting ready to eat, you know, taking that bath, getting ready to just relax, maybe watch a couple shows, maybe read a little bit, but then we're going to bed. Yeah. And, and then the school has the duty of preparing our kids for life when the school, again, is, is was produced on an older model that was, that created the issues that we have now. Like what you speak about with your husband is very true because I think that we we live under this presumption of being um, being different is diverse, you know, mm-hmm. or because we have different uh, cultures or people people who may represent different cultures or ethnicities or genders that we're diverse, and that's not true. Like if I'm a, if I'm a black person. And your husband is indigenous to Mexico and he's Jewish. And we go through the same school system. We get the same grades, get the same degree. When have we contributed our own culture to what we just went through? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, like, like just because like just be just because you look different than somebody does not mean that you're bringing that different flavor to the melting pot. Yeah. And in, yep. in America, we have this. And one of the, the, the benefits, one of the strengths is our diversity. But one of our weaknesses is actually celebrating that diversity. Like I always joke around with my friends when, when something something bad, you know, I don't want to say something bad, but because uh, that tends to be frequent. But when something tragic happens in this country, I have a friend we text and um, I'm just like, man, you know, how people say I hate it here. Like I, I hate it here. Yeah. But like one of the things I, one of the things I can never say bad about this country, if I'm just being real, like nihilistic, I'm just like, man. They got some great food here, you know, <laughs> and, I, and, and, and that's the one thing we don't change. Well, well, the the the, the mainstream companies do like Taco Bell, yeah. pizza, and all that. Yeah. But like, you can go to the local shop in the store, New York, Chicago, L.A. You're getting that authentic taste, like the mm-hmm. authentic Indian food, Mexican food. I love that. Yeah. But then, but then, once if you get to any institution. If they teaching you culinary arts, it's, it's got to be this way, though, probably, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's, it's got to be this way. Yeah. So if and I, if we're trying to best educate our kids, I think we have to start to realize that our kids are also educating us too when they come to the classroom. Mm-hmm. So what do you like? What do you listen to? What do you like? What's your strength? What's your weakness? And just like you said, they're not they're they're learning titles to strive for to strive for, mm-hmm. but they're not learning character to strive for like you can be the wealthiest person but what does that matter if everybody's starving 
Like I don't, I, I don't get any. We were playing uh, Monopoly yesterday with oh, my God. kids. Monopoly for kids, right? Yep, yep. And I was wondering how this was gonna work because I honestly, I didn't like, I didn't like the game as a kid because it just kept going on too long. <laughs> but now with my mind, I haven't played the game probably about 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. maybe more than that, honestly. Yeah. Um, but now with my new paradigm, it's like, well, I don't like it because of what it preaches, you right? Know? So right. Like, <laughs> so, so now as I'm going through the game. <laughs> and in this this junior version of it, every land that you land on, you have to buy. You know, it's just right. like it's they keep it simple. So yeah. you know, it's less profit, but you land on it, you buy. And if you own all of it, you don't get the home, but they they have to pay you double the rent, basically. Mm. So my wife got on the side that's super expensive where you have to pay like ten dollars every time you landed on there. And then my um oldest daughter, she's seven, she was out. And she's just really sad and everything. And I was like, I mean, I said, that's the way the world is, but that's not the way it should be. Right. Like your mom, and her, her, my wife eventually be, she whooped everybody. <laughs> but I'm like, she had, let's just say, let's say she had 20, 30 million dollars. We mm-hmm. all broke. What sense does that make if we starve? And how, how is that a success? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if, 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 if I have five students who are getting an A in the class, mm-hmm. which is like a rough average, maybe two to five in every class. Is it good then that maybe my other kids have a D or F? No. I need mm-hmm. to maybe, and you're making me think about this, maybe I should be teaching those kids to now you give back. Mm-hmm. How did you get this? If it's easy for you, how can you teach them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's just, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Monopoly is something that, uh, it's funny that you bring that up because um, I remember playing that game as a kid too and just kind of like yeah, like I, I think every kid grow grew up playing that, and in in the U.S. especially, and then uh, <laughs> and then we recently our kids love games, and recently we were looking for like a family game. We try to get like a family board game every Christmas, and it's like a, a thing for the kids. And so we're going through Target and we're looking at board games and I'm like, that one's weird. I don't like it. That one's like messy and has slime everywhere. Please no. Uh, Let's look, you know, let's look at like old board games because they don't have that stuff. And so we started looking at old board games and um, my husband goes, look, there's like a, a Star Wars Monopoly set. Kids love Star Wars. And I was like, we're not buying Monopoly. And he was like, what? Why? And I said, it's capitalistic indoctrination. And he was, he was like, all right, then go ahead, put it back. So he, uh, we didn't get it. Uh, but it was, it wasn't until I was an adult, like you, like you're saying, like I w- went back over the rules one time when we were, we were at camp, uh, before COVID, we took our kids to camp and, um, it just like, you know, sitting in like the dining hall on a rainy day and we're like, oh, here's a game when kids don't know how to play Monopoly. Let's read them the instructions. And as we're reading it, I'm like, this is horrible. This is a horrible game. Why are we teaching our kids to do this? Um, and then but then realizing that like that, that is a lot of what we teach our kids, that that's like a microcosm of what we what we learn in the in the education system. When I was going through college. I felt like I was fighting over um, what was going, what career was going to like make ends meet and put food on the table and what career was the thing that I loved. And I ended up going for the career that I loved and like I don't work in that field now because it doesn't, I can't, I don't have a high enough degree. I don't have, you know, I'm like 
the the necessary experience most of which would be unpaid and all of those things you know i ended up getting married having kids and now i work in social services which is great i love it but it's not what i went to school for it's not what i was hoping for it wasn't like that dream thing that like that that you love um and i felt like forced to choose between the two and even now sometimes i look back and I go, well, I love that. I wish I could do it all the time, but maybe I should have gone in a different direction because then at least it would have been easier to, to put a roof over my kid's head, to feed them, you know, all of those things. Um, and I think a lot of, I would imagine a lot of people struggle with that and experience that, um, especially families who, you know, utilize Medicaid, SNAP, uh, Wick, all of those things, which my family, when we, that was like kind of the first moment for me was when we started utilizing those services, I was like, oh, maybe I should have gone with a different career. Maybe I should have gone with a different major. Maybe I should have just like gone with everything that everybody ever told me. And I just should have stayed in that. Um, but in the end, I, I still don't think I would have been any happier. I don't think it would matter. And I love the work that I do now. And I, I hope someday I can, uh, you know, go back to school and, and finish what I started. Um, because an undergrad degree isn't enough. But, I mean, I don't want to send my kids to college and say, just pick the major that's going to make you the most money. Or pick the major that, like, you know, where you can just continue with the status quo. Um, because I'm like the status quo is bad. We need to change the status quo. We need to, you know, break this system that we're all living in and um, and dismantle it. So as we go forward um, and you obviously being an educator and teaching history, I'm really interested in how you teach that, how you and, and how you work as a consultant, too. Um, and how you interact with different education systems, uh, different students and things like that. Because that is, it's clear that that's something that matters to you too. We don't want to just churn out cogs in a machine, turn a gear and then go forward. How do you utilize everything that you've learned and the, and the, um, and, and sort of the, the paradigm that you live in now and your understanding of these things and of what's important. How do you do that with being a teacher, especially a history teacher? How do you reach students in, in that way? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think that in terms of even with education, um, this was the career I felt that I could have the best impact in for what I wanted to do. Because I think you bring up a great point of just asking kids, you know, what impact do you want to have? Uh, what, cha what change do you want to see in the world? What do you want to contribute to or help out? Mm -hmm. And and I was, again, lucky enough to have that epiphany of sorts when I was in college. So it was like, well, my first inclination was professor because I'm like, I could just ramble, just talk and everything. And, you know, the kids got to write a paper and I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I was thinking about the aspect of having a family in my you know 20s and 30s. I'm like, well, I don't want to have to move from uh, university to university and everything, mm. but it was just, I want to do something where I could impact the youth. That was my thing. Yeah. And I, and I felt like teaching is the perfect balance. And for a lot of people out there, if, if they can share this with anybody, they know that's young, there's a big shortage, a, a huge shortage. And I understand it's not an easy career. Mm 
especially when they begin to inundate you with everything that's not related to the kids. But for me, it was like, well, I can plant seeds. I can teach kids and impact the future, make enough money to to survive. I'm not going to be super rich, not going to be super broke or whatever. But that was kind of my thing. I don't again, I don't look at myself as that that label as a teacher. I'm a lifelong learner, but that's mm-hmm. my way of, of of teaching and giving back or whatever. So I, for me in my class, I had to first learn the system. That was one of the things I didn't really have. So when I first came to my district, I was lucky enough to have some educators who had a system they shared with me. Um, and I was able to get, get my feet wet with that in terms of they had these readings. And at the end of these readings, it was to help these kids perform better on the reading test and everything. Mm-hmm. But then I'm again, I'm not that type of person. I'm not formulaic. So I began to kind of break out of it eventually. And my issue was, man, why why do we place such an emphasis on just passing the test? Mm. Like and, and, and it's, it's a it's a survival mechanism because yeah, that's a part of our evaluation. So we have to do that. But at the same time, what am I teaching kids when I'm saying, okay, you got multiple choice and you know two of the answers they're just trying to trick you. And then, <laughs> two, and then two answers. And of course, we know one's right, but one sounds right. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I'm always a teacher that's like, I see why you picked that one, though. You know? Yep. But it's supposed to be it's supposed <laughs> to be all or nothing. Like, you know, the amount of kids, because I taught AP for three years and I had to run away. But the amount of kids who were stressed over test scores, ACT, yeah. SAT, it was mind-boggling to me. Mm-hmm. I I had I, I had a lecture at the end of every year. I was mad I couldn't do it this year because of the circumstances. But mm-hmm. I would set aside half a period or maybe the whole day if they asked questions. And I would share with kids um, my, my test score. And it wasn't really like I got a 21 on the ACT. Like it's not bad. It's not great. But I, I think kids assume that in order to accomplish anything, that your test it has to be I don't know what they a thirty on the AC, ACT twenty five yeah, yeah. or like you got to get a sixteen hundred I'm like look y'all the my mentor in college he had like a fourteen or something he got admitted on a bridge program like he could his grade couldn't drop below the dude has a PhD yeah <laughs> so like it, it's it's a it's a number yeah it's a, yeah. and it's a, and it's a biased test like I said at what point in your life where your will somebody say look I want you to read a book. I want you to read a book, but it has to be in 45 minutes. I need you to answer 15 questions after. Nobody ever does that mm-hmm. except school and the military, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the purpose of each? You know what I'm saying? Right. So for me, it's like I'm I'm a uh, deliberate reader. I don't say slow. I take my time because I want to. I want to. When I, I I'm all over the place. I might get distracted, but I want to take in everything. Yeah. I don't want I don't like audiobooks. I want to touch it out, underline things, go back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't measure that on a test. Mm-hmm. But when I read something, when I learn something, I know how to apply it. Yeah. Where's the test for that? Right. You know, so I so to get back to your question, when I started when I started to break away from that formulaic model, I was grateful for the structure, but then I began to say, Well, kids like me, but they don't like school. There's a disconnect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't that like me, but you, the class, you don't like the class all the time. Sometimes you don't like the other, you know, so mm. what's going on? I remember, I think my, my first year really delving into this was when I had a class um, and it was pretty small, relatively speaking, like maybe 18, 19 kids. And we had some pretty open conversations because I didn't have 30 kids. So yeah. sometimes it was, oh God, crap, school is so boring, sick of school, blah, blah, blah. Mm. 
So I decided one year, I said, I'm going to have them do a project-based learning assignment. And it's going to be called School Sucks. <laughs> and they were going to have to, because I was listening to a podcast at the time. I don't know if it's still around, but it was called the School Sucks Podcast. Hmm. And that's where I learned about um, how Horace Mann adopted our public education system based on the Prussian model hmm. of building uniformity and, and producing soldiers and people who wouldn't just be too individualistic and want to break the go against the norm or whatever yeah um so i had them they had to pick what they wanted to change but then like have some type of historical root to it to kind of show and then the years after all my history classes now i start the first week with one it's a self-inquiry who are you mm-hmm. what's the impact what what news stories have impacted you what change do you want to see and then it's this we have a candid conversation what are the top issues in this country Almost always, I, I teach at a school that's majority Hispanic and black um, and, and white as well. And, and the poverty level is about 80%. So we're talking like it's racism, immigration, it's poverty. You know, those yeah. are the top three issues people always bring up. Yeah. And for a while, it was school shootings too. Mm. Um, so then my thing is, okay, whenever we talk about a topic, y'all, I want y'all to think in the back of your mind, where's the root? So if we say mm-hmm. racism, the issue, understand it didn't just start the last eight years. It didn't just start in your lifetime. There's a root cause to all of this, and we're all carrying this burden. Mm-hmm. So if we're, say, if we're saying, you know, immigration, what's the issue with that? And we start with Columbus. Well, shoot, Columbus wasn't really supposed, like, not to say he wasn't supposed to come, but the manner in which he came was mm-hmm. very hostile. Yeah. It's very hostile. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's unpack that and what that mm-hmm. means, because in, in 1492, in September, the population of indigenous people in this continent was 100 percent and that was mm-hmm. less than one yeah you know so that, so so that would kind of get then when i started to you know we have these candid conversations we're watching these videos of, of issues that have happened in the past um i'm showing them how what happened here boom directly connected to this mm-hmm. we talk about the creation of race i i, I tell them like my professor abdul al-kamat told me race isn't real boom mm-hmm. my mind was blown I didn't know yeah. Like, what you mean? Thought of, like, how? It's on the census. How is it not mm-hmm. real? I'm black, right? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we talk about how for the first 20 or some odd years, black folks, although they were forced to come here, um, were indentured servants with Europeans. Yeah. And they were described as Africans and Europeans. And then John Punch becomes a lifelong servant. And then Bacon's Rebellion happens. And they don't want to have black and white folks colluding together so they have to separate us mm. and they pass laws and one law we talk about is um th- this one virginia code where if an enslaved person runs away and you capture them and they resist you can kill them and you get compensated for it mm. i always get this blank stare when i show kids that and then i show them what happened to eric gardner he got mm. choked to death i showed them the GoFundMe that this man had and how much money he raised. And it's like you can hear a pin drop in the class. Mm. So that that's my way. And, and the way I bring it back is, okay, how can we orga- How can we discuss this in, in, a, in a proactive manner? We have to learn how to write. That's how you organize your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So how we put this together? What's, you say this is the most important issue, but what's your proof that it's the most important issue now? Mm-hmm. And what's the root in the past people see? Yeah. Um, without that, my days in class when I feel most detached is when I feel like I'm forcing myself to do something because I have to meet a quota, mm-hmm. the test score. Mm-hmm. When I say, okay, uh, this be real. What's going on with you? Uh, mental health. 
bam, let's go back in the past. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> said you were, you were in the war, civil war, all all that trauma. It's just shell shock. World mm. War War. Oh yeah, you just you know it's, they didn't diagnose PTSD to the seventies after right. Vietnam. Right. Right. And they just like people had trauma for hundreds and thousands of years before <laughs> then. Right. Well, and it's generational, too. So, like, we can't even, even if we're, like, it's it's generational in, in every culture. If somebody, you know, somebody's ancestors experienced a mass trauma and it's, like, directed at their entire culture, their entire identity um, or gender or whatever the case may be, that's carried down. Like, we forget about the fact that that's, that's stored in people's bodies and then it goes down in, gets carried down into their children's bodies and it goes on for generations and generations. And then we wonder, what, like, what's the problem? Like, what's wrong with you? Um, but it's never been addressed. It's never been handled or treated or allowed even um, to to like exist nobody acknowledges it and then everybody is just supposed to be fine or like hunger which is one of the biggest issues um, for children poverty and 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 hunger are some of the biggest problems that at least the families that I work with face uh, food insecurity and housing insecurity are massive problems. And I work in, in Joliet, in Will County, and in Kankakee, in those areas. And um, I can tell you the demographics of the families that, that I work with that um, struggle to, to get by, um, they, they all match a certain criteria, right? Um, I, most of the white families that I work with, even if they um, are dealing with poverty um, they don't have as much, uh, they, they have, e well, first of all, they have easier access to things. It's easier for them to access, you know, resources and help and, um, get where they need to go. It's also more likely that they're going to get whatever job that they're interviewing for so that they can put food on the table and, uh, you know, all of, all of those things that matter. Um, but the families that I work with that are like just trying to, you know, um, manage and then you have the generational trauma that's piled on top of it and then we have child hunger and I work with kids who are um, zero to three years old and we're trying to prepare them it's a it's a prevention initiative and we're trying to get them ready for school so that they can succeed in school and honestly the biggest thing that we're always fighting for is for parents and children to be able to spend time together so because without a connection without safety without attachment those kids are not going to do well in school. They're never going to feel like they can learn. You, children can't learn if they're unsafe. They can't learn if they're hungry. They can't learn if they're scared. And so as we try to prepare these kids for school so that they can do well um, and feel safe and learn and, and take care of themselves when they're adults, uh, it starts so young and then we have families who have generational trauma. They were impoverished. They were hungry, these parents, when they were kids. And they're still hungry. And they're going without so that they can feed their kids or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and then we throw all these kids into school and we expect everything to be fine. But we ignore the years that happened beforehand where they spent, you know, three, four, five years being hungry not knowing what they were going to come home to, you know, not feeling safe because mom and dad are forced to work in order to, you know, 
feed them in order to pay the rent. And so then we have kids who are already insecure. They're already scared and they're entering school. And so how can we change that? In in the in the work that I do, um, I love the work that I do. I love that I get to be a part of that. But ultimately, um, the best thing I can do is try to explain to parents why their connection with their kid matters, what it's going to do for their child, um, and then connect them with whatever resources if they need, you know, jobs or mental health services or whatever. But at the same time, those things are limited. There's they don't there's not a lot of um, of access to that, especially now during the pandemic. So we have a whole group of children who are growing up right now and they're going to go to school soon or they just started school. And this is how they're moving into it with a whole lot of insecurity, with a whole lot of trauma and hunger. And then we have to somehow do what you're doing. We're hoping that educators will do what you're doing where they say, hey, what's really going on? What's really the problem? How can we really help you? Um, and not just, I want you to get a good grade on this test, or I want you to know the answers on this test, and here's how you figure it out. Um, but I don't, I don't know um, that all educators think that way. But you bring up some great points, and for what we haven't been taught, and for a lot of us, if we haven't lived and experience it's hard for us to teach it so again which goes back to my initial point of if you stop your education when you get your degree you're mm -hmm. failing your kids yeah. to me like our classes have to be transformative in that every subject should be based on how am i helping children solve or solve problems or continue a cycle that they want to continue i always tell my students in history we're in the business of well, my class the business is either breaking destructive cycles or continuing progressive ones. Hmm. So again, when I show them these things that have happened in the past that are happening now, I say, y'all, it's just a cycle. Every generation, even you might not see, you know, you don't see the people maybe picking cotton. You don't, maybe not, don't see five-year-olds, six-year-olds in factories like you did during the uh, Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. But for one, they are overseas. But for two, it's just, it's a di it's a different model. It's, it's, yeah. it's we, we our system doesn't necessarily change what it does uh it, well, it doesn't change the philosophy it just changes how you see what it does it's yeah. the same thing it's, it's the exact same thing yeah. so for me like when you talk like, we look at like maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs our kids don't have their basic needs met mm -hmm. and then they're coming to a school where we want to teach something but if my kids are hungry then how can i get to something like for me it's easy because i teach history and I say easy because I can really talk about any topic and I can bring it back around. Mm -hmm. But how do I teach a kid who's starving? How do I teach a kid who maybe is being abused? And then we say, hypothetically, oh, well, you know, school is, you get good grades and make it out. You can be the example. You'll be mm -hmm. successful. And here's my big thing. I had this, I had a discussion with, uh, it was, I guess you would say it was a Twitter debate with a well-known educator. Um, he has a very successful I think, uh, I guess you would call it like a group of charter schools. Okay. And, you know, he, he, does, he does a great job with it. I think it's like in, in a, it's an inner city on the, in the East Coast. Mm. And um, a lot of his kids graduate, go to college, you know, might be 100% of every kid that goes there. And he's a big advocate for school choice and parents should be able to send their kids wherever, blah, blah, blah. And I told him as, as a response, I said, respectfully, man, that's great in theory. But to me, it's only good if all schools are equitable, meaning yeah. that if I'm choosing to send my kid to a different school, 
it should be not because that school is better overall, but because it's just better for what they're interested in. Yep. Like if my neighborhood school was based on um, trades and my kid wants to go into the liberal arts and sciences, then I would say, okay, I'm going to send you over here. Mm-hmm. Not because it has 20,000 more dollars a person, but because yep. it's just better for your interest. Yep. And, and I think at its core, how we even measure a successful school is just flawed. So mm-hmm. we're successful because we send kids to college. Mm. but then the community they left to go to college and be successful is still the same. Yeah. So what's the success? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so if, if I teach at an inner city school where the poverty is, is skyrocketing every year, businesses are gone, jobs are gone, yep. but I'm sending 100% of my kids to these Ivy League schools and they're getting these well-paying jobs, mm-hmm. that doesn't make my school successful. That makes my, my school, actually, I'm, I'm funneling them back into the very system again that created this this very mess. Come back next week to hear the second half of our conversation, Hope for the Future of Education. You've been listening to 99 Lead Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Mr. Ernest Krim III, for joining me. For more of Mr. Krim's work, follow him on Twitter at MrKrim3. Links to Mr. Krim's social media and other platforms are also available in the liner notes. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company, licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.